God is good all the time. I've been preaching most every Sunday for the past 35 years or so. Lands me at about 2,500 separate sermons I've prepared for, at least 5,000 deliveries. That's a bit of preaching. I got a real simple process. I do my very best to prepare. I believe the Holy Spirit for insights. I deliver the message as best and as most effectively as I can. And at that point, it's up to the hearer. It's completely up to the hearer. Now, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just sort of get your head around this. Jesus, in his own time, would have been called Yeshua Nazareya, Jesus of Nazareth. They would have spoke Aramaic. The writing would have been in Greek, Koinea Greek. So there's always translation things going on. Jesus is in the Galilee region. That's in northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a lake. And he would have been up in the hills. As the sermon starts, he is with his disciples. And it says the crowds are gathering below. But by the time we get to this last piece of the Sermon on the Mount, it's clear that the crowd has been growing. People have been migrating up to hear, down, to hear what Jesus has to say. Last week, we explored Jesus' teaching about not judging others. And I suggested that Christ alone is the judge, and we should repent of our critical and judgmental spirits. We should further persistently pray that God would deliver us from the temptation to always focus on the splinter in our neighbor's eye when we have an entire tree in our own. Now, I prepared it as best I'm able. I gave it everything I had as I delivered it. And then people either applied that message or they didn't. The same goes for the other 5,000 sermons. I preach, prepare, leave things to you, knowing that if we do things Jesus' way, things are going to have pretty incredible outcomes. You may ask yourself, okay, you've been doing this for a long time. How's it all turned out over the years? It's turned out pretty well. It's turned out pretty well. I've seen a lot of people accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I've seen a whole lot of those people be baptized. In fact, I think we're over 1,300 individual baptisms since I've been here. I've seen a whole lot of those people baptized become disciples. And I've seen a lot of those disciples become volunteers. And a lot of those volunteers become leaders. I think things have gone pretty well. We've seen God do incredible things here. Not the least of which, this church has grown from 200 a week to over 3,700 a week. It doesn't happen just everywhere. We've been caught up in something really special. We should never take that for granted. For the past few months, we've been engaged in an evangelism initiative we call 500. Over 500 of us agreed to invite one new person to church every week for 60 weeks. We are a few weeks in. If you want to resupply, you can get more cards at the Welcome Center, and you don't have to be part of the 500 to invite someone to church. Just pick some cards up. Now, we use the mantra, the invite is the win. So when you invite somebody, that is the win. The reality is you can't make somebody be your guest at church. 
All you can do is hand them a card, offer a personal invitation, and what they do with that is up to them. How's it all turning out? Pretty well. Pretty well. I meet first-time guests every single week, and they are coming from all over the place. In fact, there was a group of folks all sitting together at early church this morning, and they were all from Sparta. And, and I greeted them. I said, how are the bulldogs? And they said, how is the Indian? I'm from DuCoin. And so people are coming further and further and further. Why do people drive? Because God's doing something here. People want to be caught up in a movement of the Holy Spirit. Nobody wants to prop up institutional religion. People want to be caught up in something they can lean into. To give their lives peace and purpose and passion and power. That's what we are doing here. Every week I meet new guests. I did a little something. I, I compared attendance. Same Sundays last year to the same Sundays this year. As a result of the invitations you're offering, we are up 295 people a week in worship over last year. It's incredible. Last week we had an appeal for volunteers. Just ready to take that next step. This is an opportunity to roll up your sleeves, to serve, to throw your energy, your passion into something a little bigger than yourself. You know, attend in church, yes. And then maybe stay in after church or come in a little early to volunteer, to pour into our children, to, to work with our wonderfully made ministries, to, to be a buddy to a child with special needs, to be on the security team. Do you realize we have a security team monitoring this place right now? We've got cameras everywhere. We've got a sheriff's car out there. Because they worry about one set of things, we're free just to come in here and worship Jesus. I am so grateful for all of those on our safety and security team. We've got greeters. We've got ushers. We've got welcomers. There is a place to sign up right outside. We're going to extend this one more week. And we would love to have you just get that process started. We'd love to talk to you. How did things go last week? Pretty well. I was overhearing some of the safety and security folks talking this morning about all the new folks they have joining their ministry. I, I praise God for that. Today's Commitment Sunday for our two-year extra giving sanctuary renovation campaign. One thing I wanted to do, those of you that attend church here, we've mailed cards out, but is there anybody that doesn't have a commitment card that would like one? Just raise your hand. Keep it up until the ushers find you. It's several early out. We've got some folks around. Just keep your hand up until the ushers find you. Over the past few months, we've been making our case for necessary infrastructure upgrades and renovations. Our financial strategy is crystal clear. We're going to cover as much of this project as we can with pledges. We're going to borrow the rest. And we're going to pay off the renovation loan as quickly as possible. When that's done... We're going to turn our attention to our remaining indebtedness, which is financed at much lower rates. We're going to apply the resources freed up from paying off the renovation debt to the larger debt. Dave Ramsey would call that a debt snowball. All the while, we are building up our legacy foundation here. It's nearing $300,000. We just really started that thing not long ago. What is the end game? To outfit this space for the next 20 years 
to pay off our two loans and to grow the legacy foundation to the point we will one day become our own bank. We offer you a chance to join us in this cause by making a two-year commitment at the end of the service if this is your church. Now, let's get back to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is concluding. Jesus opened by saying, when we are most aware of our need for God, we are most blessed, regardless of how difficult our circumstances. He then told us as people of faith to be what's good in the world. To be what's good in the world. And he offered teachings on a whole host of topics to establish that religion can't save us, only Jesus can. I'm going to say it one more time. Religion can't save us. Only Jesus can. He next communicated that we'll never be free from the grip of fear and worry until we exercise our love of material things. And then he established that we can afford to follow him. If Jesus calls you to be a disciple, you can afford to follow Jesus. He will take care of you. If Jesus pings you to do something, you can afford to say yes. He will take care of you. Last week, we probed the imperative to treat people as we would hope to be treated ourselves. Before Jesus left his listeners to either apply what he said or ignore it, he offers a final thought. And that's our text today. 24 through 25. Anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys is like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes and the flood rages, the house will stand. The Greek tells us that Joseph, the husband of Mary, was a tecton. A tecton is often translated carpenter, but we, we miss a little bit. I always tell people at Christmas, if you don't watch it, you're going to grow up your whole life thinking that Jesus was born in a barn in Indiana. And, and he's not exactly that. Carpenters made useful things out of wood or stone. Has anybody ever been to Galilee? There's not a lot of wood. There's a lot of stone. So the basalt, the, the volcanic mineral that is there, is, is what they made most things out of. So Jesus made useful things. We also know that Jesus lived in the time when Sepphoris, which is a Jewish city, was being constructed, and it's not far from Nazareth. Every reason to think that Joseph and Jesus had employment working in Sepphoris, helping to build the city. So what I want you to understand is that while most Galileans were fishermen or farmers or merchants, Jesus built stuff with his hands. He would have known a great deal about constructing houses. In fact, he would have known a great deal more about that than he would have known about fishing or business or farming. So he doesn't land this incredibly important Sermon on the Mount with a long reach. He concludes with a deeply informed and intensely practical metaphor. Galilee is, is rocky. It's hilly. I remember the first time I went to Galilee, be 1996. I know what you're thinking. Man, he doesn't look that old. But 1996, I'm up in Galilee. There are rocks everywhere. And our guide was a Jewish guide. And he said the rabbis believed that when God was creating the earth, he gave the angels bags of rocks to spread throughout the earth. And the bags ripped on top of Galilee. There's just rocks absolutely everywhere in Galilee. It's also hilly. The 
Sea of Galilee is, is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. You get lower than that, you turn into the Dead Sea or the Great Salt Lake. It's really low. So it's kind of a bowl, and then there are mountains around it. And the biggest mountain is Mount Hermon to the north. Galilee was once better watered. So there are ancient creek beds, maybe even ancient rivers, called wadis that are all over the place. Wadis are dry almost all the time, except in the winter when they get some of their rare heavy rains. The wadis turn into rivers. So these floods flash for a few hours. They wash away everything that's in front of them. And then they shrink back into the altered sandy landscape and they just disappear. Back in those days, the places that it's easy to build a house is never where you wanted to build a house. I want you to hear me. The places where it was easy to build a house is never where you wanted to build a house. Let me tell you where it's easy to build a house, in a wadi. It's the easiest place in the world, but a durable house in that region would have to be built on high ground, hard to get to. And the foundation isn't dug into the sand, It's chipped into the rock. And Jesus says those who listen and obey, his words are building a spiritual house like that. 26 and 27. But those who hear my teaching and ignore it are like those who build a house on sand. When the rain and wind and floods come, it'll come crashing down. There are three critical errors that you can make building a house in Israel. Number one, building in the wrong place. The easiest places to build are the wrong places to build. There are many people today building their spiritual house in the wrong place. They're trying to find salvation in places other than Jesus Christ. You see, if you look to other places to find God, you you may find some self-help. You might find a worthwhile cause. You might find a winsome philosophy, a few great books. You might even find a new religion, but you won't find salvation. You won't find salvation. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Secondly, using the wrong materials. Using the wrong materials. Did you know you can build a pretty impressive house out of cheap materials and save a whole lot of money, but that house isn't going to hold up very long? It's just not going to hold up very long. I moved here in 1997. The church, the chapel, what is now the cafe and the office area, was already here. Everything else was built later. But I remember one day, I'd just been here about a year or so, and it's Sunday morning, and I'm getting ready to walk into the sanctuary, which is now the chapel. It had doors with handles on them. And I'm walking in, and I grabbed the door, and I pulled it, And the door handle came off in my hand. It snapped off. It just snapped off in my hand. It was one year old. There were a group of four gentlemen who were ushers watching me, laughing their heads off. All four of them were on the building committee. And one of them, by the name of Claire, said to me, and I quote, Aren't you glad we saved all that money? Let me tell you something. Faith must be built upon Christ and Christ alone. Faith must be anchored in the word of God. Not the sensibilities 
of a culture, not the raging emotions of an individual. Faith must be built on Christ and Christ alone. you got to use the right materials. And number three, failing to dig a proper foundation. You see, you can't just build on top of shifting earth as easy as it is. got to anchor something in solid rock. Last week, we had 17 new people join the church. They committed to support the church with their prayers, presence, gifts, service, witness. Why do we have those membership vows? Because those are all things that get you into a foundation. They're things that root you in your faith. You know, it's great to accept Jesus, and that begins the journey. But it's not the end of the journey, it's the beginning. And we need to be rooted into that foundation of Christianity. We have to be anchored into that solid rock. Spiritual disciplines create those firm foundations. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we learn to pray. That's why we come to church. It, it, it builds those firm foundations. You see, it matters how you build your spiritual house, and it matters where you build your spiritual house. Because even within Christianity, not all doctrines and traditions are made equal. You see, we live in a time today when a lot of people believe that all religions are about the same. You know, all religions are essentially the same. You hear it all of the time. But the reality is that Jesus would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There are four theological viruses that I see floating around these days that cause me concern as a pastor. And they cause me concern for three reasons. Number one, they have wide appeal. Number two, I can see why they have wide appeal. And number three, they're going to serve us poorly in the long run. Let's take a look at these four viruses real quick. The first one I see is this idea that God is made for us. God is sort of like our servant in the sky. God's sort of like Santa who gives us gifts whether we are good or not. I truly get the appeal of making God a means to worldly prosperity. But the Sermon on the Mount stands antithetical to this notion in every conceivable way. Jesus taught that true happiness is found in submitting our dreams to the dream of God for our life. He taught it's by dying to self that we truly live and that we become great by serving others. He, he told us that life isn't about what you accumulate. Life is about what you give away. God is not a means to our ends of worldly prosperity. Jesus said, unless you break your love of worldly prosperity, you won't see the kingdom of God at all. God is an ends in himself. The second virus is this notion that Christian people should spend their entire lives waiting for God to ask them to do some great thing. I get the appeal to, to warn out and, and discourage church and charity volunteers, but the Bible just doesn't support the premise. Some years ago, I, I approached a young couple about serving the church in, in a very specific way. And they said, you know what? We really could do that. We've got the time to do it. We just didn't feel this huge, overwhelming impulse that we should. I said, you mean like Moses when he saw the burning bush? And they go, yeah, like that. I said, are you aware that in the history of humankind, that's only happened once? So if that's your play, I'm thinking 
it's going to be somewhat of a waste of your earthly life. You're going to waste your whole life asking you for God or waiting for God to ask you to do some great thing while you ignore countless things that God is asking you to do. You see, the Bible teaches that being faithful in small things is what qualifies us and prepares us to do greater things. And the Bible also teaches there really are no small things. All we have to do is hear the pings of God, the promptings of God, and, and obey. I'm convinced that the true greatness of a person is not defined by a single heroic act. But it's in the grind of daily faithfulness and obedience to God. Third virus is that there's this idea that modern people are suddenly smarter than anyone else who's ever read the Bible. It's a shift from classic liberalism, which basically said the Bible is wrong and, and attacked the credibility of the Bible. This new shift is the Bible's right, but we've been reading it wrong. Absolutely everyone but us has been reading the Bible wrong for roughly 2,000 years. These pseudo-theologians begin with culturally popular outcomes and kind of steer the Bible in their direction. The harm will not be to the Bible. I want to be very clear about that. When the sensibilities of this culture are long forgotten, the Bible will still be shining like a new dime. I guarantee you that. But the harm will be to our culture. Because our culture will lose the power, the substance, the witness, and the critique of the biblical church. Folks, we can't go soft on the Bible. We can't go soft on the Bible. And the fourth virus is that God is somehow aligned with our political party. I want to be very clear. God is not a Democrat. And before you say amen, God is not a Republican. <laughs> God also isn't an American. God is way bigger than all of that. I serve the God who created the heavens and the earth. And to reduce God to the size of an American voting booth is an act of idolatry. We must never view theology through a political lens. It will always land us in the wrong place. Contentment is found through sacrifice. Calling is found in obedience. Truth is found in Christ and Christ alone. And the kingdom will come when we hear and heed the words of Jesus. So be careful. Be careful about who you let speak into your life. Because you don't want to build in the wrong place. And you don't want to build with bad materials. Where you attend church matters. Who you choose to be your spiritual guides matters. Choose well. Because eternity rests upon it. Verse 28 and 29, when Jesus was finished, all were amazed, for he taught with real authority. The whole of this sermon is a choice. And that's what I have trouble convincing people of sometimes. It's a choice. Everything Jesus offers is a choice. Jesus is saying you can't simultaneously live with one foot in the kingdom of this world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying you can't love money and love God. Jesus is saying you can't simultaneously build on the sand and build on the rock. And he's saying if we close our ears and ignore his words, that we are building in sand. 
But if we hear and heed his words, we build on the solid rock. And in this, we learn two really important things. Really important things. The first one is, if you build on the rock, no matter what comes your way, you'll still stand. Now, the second one's not quite as fun. The second thing we learn is no matter where you build, storms are still going to come. We live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Everything about this world has disrupted, because of sin, the world God created for us to live in. We live in a flawed space. There is absolutely no doubt about that. We have choice. We can live with the values of this world. Or we can take Jesus' teaching and put them into play in our life. And if we live through the values of this world, we're going to have one very specific outcome. And if we obey the teachings of Jesus, we're going to have a very specific outcome. And we're going to have very different destinations. It's really, really important stuff. But how's it go for those who hear and heed the words of Jesus? Really well. Really well. Had somebody tell me a while back, they said, I don't really understand Revelation. I said, no one understands Revelations. But I can tell you what it's all about. They said, what's that? Those, for those who choose Jesus, things turn out really well. For those who ter- choose Jesus, things turn out really well. Now it's land is capital campaign. The challenge for churches today is to remain non-negotiable on our theology, but forward thinking concerning our methodology. So what we believe is immutable. How we go about doing church has to be done leaning into the future. At Christ Church, we are going to stand on biblical truth in Christian love. That is non-negotiable. We are going to proclaim Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That is non-negotiable. However, things like our worship style, the amount of services we offer and where we offer them, The kind of music we play, our use of technology, our evangelism strategies, the appearance and functionality of our buildings, those constantly have to be renegotiated with an eye to the future. See, the choice is never change or stay the same. The long-term choice is always change or die. Change or die. When my grandkids were little, like when they were four Three, two, and new. I would take them to breakfast on my day off on Fridays. Everything went terrible. Always. Everything always went terrible. It was awesome. In fact, I, my, my, my first big book that I wrote was called Love God, Love People, Don't Do Dumb Crap. And it's just filled with stories about my grandkids at breakfast. Horrible things happened on a regular basis. And yet as I look back, I so, I'm so thankful that I did that. I'm so thankful that I took the time just to spend with my grandkids. And now they're in eighth grade, seventh grade, and fifth grade. We talk all the time about all the hilarious stories that happened when we were at breakfast. Papa, do you remember when? And we just laugh and laugh even now. Let me tell you what I learned about taking my grandkids to breakfast. Number one. I learned that they always get to choose the restaurant. If I want to spend time with them, they get 
to choose the restaurant, guess what's the second thing I learned? I always have to buy. (laughs) And I did learn a third thing, and it was all worth it. You see, church, if we want to have a future and a hope, we're going to have to let the young people choose the restaurant, and we're going to have to buy. Because they are going to be rooted in this beautiful Christian tradition. And someday we will hand this baton to them. And I believe with all of my heart, the world needs a church like Christ Church more than it ever has. The world needs a church that is going to stand up boldly and say, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And we are not budging on it. The world needs a church that is going to stand in the teachings of Jesus. They are not ours to negotiate. We must accept them or reject them, but we don't get to modify them. And we're going to be a church that stands there in Christian love. I tell people all the time, if you don't believe in what the Bible clearly teaches, we're not going to be the church to you, for you. But if you want to be all ugly about it, we're not going to be the church for you either. We're going to stand there in love. And that is a message I'm excited about taking into the future. I'm excited about handing that baton to my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids one day. I am excited about investing in that incredible future. The choice a church faces is always clear. Congregations will either choose how we'll live on purpose or we will choose how we die by default. In 1996, this church averaged just under 200 a Sunday. I want you to think about it. 200 a Sunday. We were located across from Burger King by the mall. McAllister's Deli stands there now. The congregation at the time chose to sell their existing property, painfully watched a 30-year-old church be torn down, relocated and built here. And there wasn't even a road that went here when they were doing that. It was under construction. There wasn't one thing about that move that was easy. Not everyone agreed it was the right move. But I can tell you, had this church not chosen to change, it would almost certainly be struggling for its institutional survival today because that's what every church I know of that chose not to change is doing right now. The people who were here chose another path. I I wasn't one of them. The people here before me chose another path. They chose the road less traveled. They kept an eye toward the future. And we are here now because of the hard choices and financial sacrifices that they made then. And how did it turn out? Pretty well. Look around. Pretty well. I felt pinged to do something this week. And I'm just going to do it because I'm old and I just sort of do what I want. All of you who were a part of Christ United Methodist Church before I came, would you all just stand right now? All of you that were a part of this church before I came, would you please stand? I want to personally thank you for your vision. And I want to thank you for your sacrifice. I want to thank you for doing hard things when the easiest thing to do would have been nothing. 
we share in that legacy. And I'm so grateful for every single one of you. In response to that growth in 2007, we financially sacrificed again to build this sanctuary. They said it seated 1,100 people. And I'm sure it seats 1,100 really thin people, but it somewhat gets there. The space has served us well. And now we make a choice to live once again. First of all, I want to praise God. We do not have to relocate and build a new church complex and spend 25 or $30 million to do it at these interest rates. I praise God that's not where we are. We just need to repair some infrastructure and we need to get this house remodeled for the next generation. Easy. We can do this. This is a communion Sunday. So for those of you that are part of this church that have your commitments ready, we're just going to invite you to come and place them in the bowls that are everywhere as you come to receive communion. Melissa and I have heard our ping, and we've already responded to what God put on our hearts to do on top of our regular giving. But I have bad news for you. Our pledge is under $2 million. (laughs) So we're going to need your help. We're going to need your help to make this happen. I can tell you that we sacrificed in order to make that because we believe in Christ church. And I'm acutely aware that every great thing I have in my life now was made possible by the sacrifice and visions of people long ago. And I want to be those people now who have that vision and make that sacrifice so people 20 years from now, when they remodel this place again, are still highly effective in connecting people with Jesus Christ. We've taken this project through our processes. We've made our case to the congregation. Nothing, no project ends up being what everybody would have done. But we have good processes. We've got good people who have led us. And now the rest is up to you. How will it all turn out? I'm thinking pretty well. I don't think God's brought us this far to leave us. And I don't think this is the end of how God's going to use Christ Church. I think it's only the beginning. And I, for one, am honored to be a part of playing this great, beautiful Christian faith of ours forward. So as our communion stewards come forward. I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for these gifts of bread and wine. Make them for us the body and blood of Christ that we might be Christ's body, redeemed by his blood. Forgive us of our sins, the things we should do that we don't, the things we don't do that that we should. Forgive us, dear God, for being so judgmental. Forgive us for our critical spirits. Forgive us that so often we hear the words of Jesus, but we do not heed them. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. You don't have to be a member of Christ Church to take communion here. You don't have to have a membership laminated card or a decoder ring or anything. All you have to do is just be somebody that wants to follow Jesus. We have little pieces of bread. We dip them in the juice. And we take them in that way. 
If you need gluten-free elements, they're right here in the middle. And if you would prefer prepackaged elements, they're in the middle as well. And we'd be happy to serve you. There are also stations at both sides of the balcony. Jesus has done all the hard stuff. Table set. Invitations made. He's invited the likes of us to join him at his table. I, for one, plan to take him up on it. Would you stand as we worship and come forward as the ushers lead you?